Welcome, everyone. This is Amy Wenslow with your product business podcast, the number one place for you to get the insights, information, and ideas that move your product business forward. Today's episode is from a live Q&A call-in that I've been doing as a public service for years where we have answered thousands and thousands of questions from entrepreneurs just like you, all creating consumer product businesses, both online, offline, and every combination in between. Grab a beverage, grab a pen, pad of paper, whatever it is you use to take notes and settle in for this part of our conversation. Hello, everyone. This is Amy Wenzel, and I am so glad that you're here on the Product Business Podcast with us. Today, I have a very, very special episode for you. There is an IT attorney I met years ago who I just really, really respect how he's thinking about his business and how he works with clients and, and his knowledge about the patent and IT process. So I invited Adam Diamant to come talk with us and interview him about intellectual property for inventors. And Adam has a podcast, which I'm sure you would love to check out, that is all about IP for inventors. So we'll be giving you that information and more as we go through this interview. So Adam, welcome, welcome to the Product Business Podcast. Thank you so much, Amy. Um, you know, it was great meeting you many years ago, and I remember when I first met you that thinking that if I ever start up on my own, that you'd be a good person to connect with because, uh, you know, inventors don't just need patent attorneys, but they need kind of a whole team of people that have different experiences in, um, in helping to bring their, you know, products to market and actually make money off of it. I am so glad that we, between the two of us, have two sides of the coin, right? There's the protection because Obviously, if someone's going out and they're talking to investors, one of the first questions they get asked about is what kind of patent protection or copyright or trademark do they have. So let's talk for a minute about the the type of patents. And you specialize a bit. Um, you've got such great background in biology, and you work in medical and across different categories. So let's talk about some of the the categories of patents you've worked with, and what got you into patents? Yeah, so initially, you know, I wanted to be a scientist. Uh, I got my degree in genetics uh, in undergrad, and then in grad school, I got my PhD in genetics, but decided that I, I wanted to use my science background in something else besides research. So I thought about law school, and um, with, you know, with law, um, if you have a science or engineering background, kind of a good place for you to fit into is, is patents because you have to have that type of background in order to write patent applications. So I like to do stuff having to do with my background, such as medical devices, but I really cover all sorts of different things. I've done basic things such as, you know, kitchen appliances. I've done uh, dog muscle, uh, muzzles, uh, but I've done, you know, complex things such as catheters and water treatment devices. So it really um, varies a whole bunch of even in some uh, fashion patent applications related to clothing. Really? Wow, that's so intriguing. You know, one of the things that a lot of people misunderstand or don't know is that a good part of their business's value is related to the intellectual property as well as the sales. And so it's really compelling 
for people to pay attention to how they're protecting their intellectual property. So I really wanted to highlight that before we dive deep into the different types of patents and the different types of IP. So let's do a quick conversation of that. What kinds of patents would you see or could be filed for a standard type of invention or product? Uh, most of the time, uh, people will are interested in what's called a utility patent or a design patent. Uh, there is another kind of patent called the plant patents, but uh, they're they're pretty rare. Uh, utility patents are for things that have uses. So if you want to stop someone from being able to uh, have a device that does a particular thing, accomplishes a goal, um, that's called the utility patent, and that's about 92% of patents right now. Uh, there's another type of patent called a design patent. And that's not for how a thing works, but it's the look and feel of something. So, for example, if you had a new, let's say, a vase, uh, you're not trying to patent any new function of the vase. It's, it's acting in the same way. This holds something. But you might have a new shape to it. And if you want protection for that, you could get a design patent for it. And those are useful, especially for people doing direct knockoffs of products, because if it looks exactly the same, um, then you can get, then you can stop people from doing that. For a utility patent, um, something can look completely different, but if a patent is written in a certain certain way uh, to give you broad protection, then it can cover, uh, it can stop people from um, doing other devices that accomplish the same use. Really? Hmm. I, I always love that. You know, people don't really understand the differences. And then there's another thing that comes up with the people that we talk to and our clients, there's a misunderstanding about provisional patent applications and non-provisional. Can you speak a little bit to that? Yeah, so the, the terminology is a little bit confusing because the non-provisional, the one with the word non in it, is the real one. So it's just something to think about when uh, when you hear provisional or non-provisional. So when you think of a real patent, the one that gives you protection, that all starts from what's called a non-provisional application. Uh, that generally will get you about 20 years of protection from the filing date. Now, those do cost a fair amount of money. It, it depends on the complexity of it. So, you know, you're looking at, you know, could be 5000 could be $15,000. Uh, so it can get expensive. And a lot of people don't have those funds to, to start out like that. So you can file something called a provisional patent application. Now, this doesn't actually get examined by a patent examiner. But what it does is it holds your place in line. So if you file this provisional application, Within 12 months, you have to file your real application, your non-provisional. Now, if you do that, um, and if, if you do it the right way, what it means is that when your provisional patent app, when your non-provisional is examined, it's as if you had filed it on that earlier date. And the reason why that's important is anything that's out in the public can be used against you to reject your application. It could say, no, this is already out there, so you can't get a patent on it. So what you want to be able to do is have something on file with the patent office as early as you can. So if you file a provisional application, within 12 months you file your non-provisional, it's as if you had filed it earlier. So fewer things can be used against you. And you'll especially want to do this if you are about to present to investors or start selling online, because those things can, uh, can be used to reject your application if you don't have something else on file. And they are a lot less expensive because there's not a lot of the legal language that's involved. And it's in a way, it's like a rough draft, but you should not treat it like a rough draft. You still have to fully describe your invention, but you don't have the formal requirements of uh, the formal drawings or the formal legal language. So they're a little bit easier to file. A lot of people do it on their own. 
Uh, and then uh, those 12 months also give you some time to kind of think about how you want to proceed or if you want to proceed at all uh, with your invention and, and doing the more expensive steps of intellectual property. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we and we've seen it happen where we ask, are you patented or, you know, what's your patent status? And people will say, oh, I filed for my patent. And I said, well, wh- what is it? And they'll go, oh, it's a, what a, my attorney said it was a PPA. And I'm like, oh, that's a provisional patent application. You need to understand the difference. So I love that you're highlighting that. Um, it is something that's out there that got a little muddy for a lot of people. Do you see the same kind of thing where people are misunderstanding? Yeah, especially, um, you know, when I talk about the, especially the cost difference, before I even fully explain the provisional and just talk about, you know, it might be $1,000 versus $6,000, so like, that's the one I want, the provisional. I'm like, wait, just hold on one second. Let me tell you what it is and what it isn't. So, I mean, one good thing is that when you file a provisional, you could put patent pending uh, on your on your product. Um but it doesn't get examined at all. So it's never going to turn into a patent by mm-hmm. itself. Uh, you have to be aware that, you know, within 12 months, you're going to have to put out some more money and file the non-provisional uh, patent application, the NPA, um, if you want this to potentially turn into a patent application, uh, into an issued patent. Right. You know, I am one of the speakers for the patent office about commercialization, about making money from the product ideas. I'm certainly not a patent attorney. I'm not a patent agent, all of that. But one of the patent examiners, Adam, gave the best example of how they view provisional patents and what the process is for them. They said he, he has his hands out in the air and he's like pretending he's holding the sheet of paper. He goes, this is what we do with the provisional patent application. When I say we don't examine it, we treat it like oh, we got a letter and we put it in a drawer and we don't even open it until you file your non-provisional application. It's like literally just filed away. Yeah. Um, And it's almost even worse than that. Um, Even when you file your non-provisional, the patent examiner generally isn't going to go back to your provisional and make sure that everything that you discussed in your non-provisional um, was written about somewhere in your provisional. So what can happen is you could get a fully issued patent, um, and it might only be years later in litigation where someone will bring up, like, hey, you know, you got this earlier filing date based on this provisional, but in this provisional, you talked about, you know, stuff that was completely irrelevant and, you know, wasn't even in your, you know, it, it didn't end up being part of your invention. So you do have to be careful. Because it's not examined, no one's going to tell you that you're doing it wrong. So uh, something to think about. Mm-hmm. And the other part that we see with the provisionals is that people will want to get licensing deals, and some companies won't license from just a provisional patent application filing. They want to know that it's gone through office actions, et cetera. So let's talk a little bit about the timeline and the process involved in getting a patent that you typically see. Sure. So um, typically a person will come to me and have, you know, various uh, stages of an idea. Sometimes they have a prototype, sometimes they don't. Um, it's always recommended that we do a formal patent search because if I do, if you think you have a great idea, uh, do a patent search and find out it's already out there, then you can just kind of cut your losses with the patent search and not go forward. Now, this doesn't mean that you can't, you know, sell your product. It just means that you won't be able to stop other people from it. Uh, not everyone wants to do the formal patent search. Sometimes people like to do it themselves. They go on uh, Google Patents uh, website, or there's another one called Free Patents Online. 
to get an idea of what's there. But it is, it is ideally better to spend a little bit of money uh, to do a formal patent search. Uh, once we do that, then I'll have some kind of back and forth with the clients about their invention. Um, what is it that's new, uh, useful, and non-obvious about it? Because that's what a patent examiner is going to look at. And I write up, I draft up a patent application, uh, send it to uh, the patent office. Now, there's a big backlog of the patent office. It could take anywhere, probably around now, between you know one, one and a half years before a, an application will be examined. So it's just sitting there. Um, hopefully, if it gets uh, you know issued, if there are no problems with it, it will get issued right away. But most of the time, the examiner will find some at least nitpicky issue, 95% of the time, to reject it for some reason. When that happens, you kind of have a choice of whether you want to fight it or whether you just want to, you know, abandon it because the examiner might have found something that really is the same thing as yours. And then you're like, well, there's no point in going forward with this anymore. Um, if it does, if you are able to fight it and it gets issued, generally, you know, that whole time frame, it might be between two and three years from when you first filed it. Uh, at that point, once it issues, uh, I think I mentioned before, you get 20 years from the date of filing. So in the end, you probably have about, you know, 17 or so years once the patent issues uh, for the protection that you get. And that protection stops other people from making and using and importing your invention and some other things, too. Got it. And, you know, that's a great illustration of the timeline. And there's so many different pieces in there. Um, I want to talk a little bit about some common pitfalls, right? Like, can you speak a little bit to some of the things that you see go wrong or misunderstandings like geography and applying in different countries? Let's talk about pitfalls. Uh, yeah, there's so many different pitfalls. That's why it's good to have an attorney do this. Um, you know, one is not knowing your competition. And, you know, you could kind of get, you know, you can kind of avoid that a little bit by doing a patent search because the patents that are out there, that's going to be part of your competition. Um, another one is actually doing too much. I've had some clients say, I want my patent enforced throughout the world. Every country uh, essentially has their own patent system. So if you want, you know, 100, if you want protection in 150 countries, you have to file 150 patent applications. That's going to be hundreds of thousands of dollars. So you really want to focus on where are you realistically going to want to protect your invention and focus on those particular countries. Otherwise, you'll be spending all your money on intellectual property when there are other things that you should be spending uh, your money on. Um, let's see, some other pitfalls, uh, at least for patents, for a, we talked about provisionals. Don't treat your provisional like a rough draft. It doesn't get examined, so you think, well, I could just, you know, kind of write whatever I want to write, and I'll, I'll, I'll flesh it out later in the non-provisional, the real application. If you treat it like a rough draft, um, you're not going to, it can almost be a negative because you think you're going to be protected from that earlier filing date because you filed something. But unless it's written well uh, and you should be able to write your invention in a way that what's called a person having ordinary skill in the art could make and use that invention, um, that's going to be the standard that you want to be able to write your provisional application from. So spend some time thinking about what your invention is uh, for the provisional as well. So those are just, you know, a couple of the mistakes that people will make with, with patent applications. Right. So that gets to one of the questions that I had for you is that how to have strong patent. You know, what are some of the tips there that make it easier for you to really support a client well? 
Sure. So, I mean, one of the, it goes back to pitfalls as well and, and how to get a strong patent. Uh, you get protection in, in the patent application or when issues in what are called claims. So there's lots of parts of the patent application. There's the written description. But in the end, there are things called claims. And the claims are, it says, my invention has parts A, B, and C, or something to that effect. Now, it's analogous to uh, a real property. So if someone said, where do you live? You could talk about the parks near you. You could talk about the cross streets. And all those things are relevant in describing, you know, your neighborhood and where you live. But you are going to have property boundaries. And that's going to be, if someone steps into that boundary, then they're trespassing. And in the same way, if someone steps into the boundary of your claims, that's patent infringement. And the reason why that's important is, when you, if you want a strong patent, and if you come up with an invention and you come to me and say, you know, my invention has these 20 parts all together. If I wrote your application to say your invention requires these 20 parts, if someone came around and just took out one of those parts, only had 19 of them, you'd probably be kind of mad and say, you know, that's, you know, that's essentially my invention. Why are they allowed to do that? Well, they're allowed to do that because in your claims, you wrote that it had to have 20 parts. So when... When you want a broad patent, what you want to do is kind of distill your invention uh, to the bare necessity of what's required. So instead of, yes, your, your, uh, your product, your, or in legal terms, what your embodiment has, it may have 20 things, but really it's three things that, that are really important. And if, if anyone tries to do these three things, you want protection. You want to be able to stop them from doing that. So a patent attorney is good to figure out what is absolutely required for your invention to work and be able to write in a way that it covers the broadest number of things. Now, you can get too broad, and once you get too broad, you're trying to cover everything, then you'll get a rejection. So what's important is trying to find that, that middle ground where you're getting broad protection, but not so broad that it's going to get rejected. You know, that sounds like walking a tightrope, you know, a little bit of latitude on each side. And the so counterintuitive because most people think that the more claims they put in, the stronger their patent would be. And you're actually saying, well, maybe sometimes to get stronger, broader protection, you might want to pull a few things out. Yeah, exactly. So if Am I, I hearing you right? Yeah. So when I see patent claims and I see it, you know, pages and pages worth of, of a single claim, that's, that's the worst kind of claim there is because all I need to do is figure out, take out one thing, and then I'm not infringing their patent anymore. Uh, there are ways to write a patent where you start broad, so you have more than one claim in a patent. So your first claim will be very broad, and you write other claims that are narrow. So this is kind of a backup, and what it does is um, if your first claim is rejected, you say, okay, my first claim is rejected, but now look to claim two, and it's more narrow. And then the examiner might say, okay, I'll allow claim two. So in the end, uh, you start out broad. You might not get everything you want, but uh, you hopefully get something in the end uh, that is a little bit narrower, but hopefully will protect you against people that are trying to what's called design around uh, your patent. Mm -hmm. That's a great point. And I love that there might be a little bit of a sacrificial lamb in the claim, like, okay, we know we can get rid of this one. We know we can keep that one. And that's, that's a whole um, level of expertise that you just don't usually have if you're writing it yourself. So, yeah. I'm so glad that we're having this conversation. Yeah, I tell people, you know, people ask, you know, should they do it themselves? And I said, well, you know, you can. It's, you know, if I have a broken bone, I could try to fix it myself. 
or I can go to a surgeon who has years of experience doing it. Um, you know, it's your choice, but just know that, you know, in, in the real world and surgery, people kind of understand that. And they're like, well, I'm not going to do that myself. That's a life and death matter. And that is true, but it, w- it could be the life and death of your business if you aren't doing your patents correctly. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So let's talk for a second about the relationship between intellectual property and licensing because that's that's related to the how do you monetize and how do you make money. And it, it goes to the strength of the patent, too. So give me some of your thoughts about the connection between them. So as I mentioned, a, a patent gives you the right to exclude people from doing things. So if someone wants to be able to use your patent, if they don't want to get sued by you, uh, they have to get permission from you. And that permission takes the form of a licensing agreement. And these can take all sorts of different forms. Uh, you can say, okay, you owe me a 5% royalty on the profits you make. It could be a flat fee saying, hey, if you want to use this for every year, you have to pay me $100,000. There could be all types of different arrangements that you have with the person who wants to license it. Another issue is um, exclusive versus non-exclusive licenses. So if one person wants to say, hey, I'll license this from you, but I don't want anyone else uh, to do it, so I want to be, be the exclusive person, that could be arranged in a licensing agreement, and you'll probably have to pay a little bit more uh, if you want that, because the person mm-hmm. who has the patent, uh, they're going to want to have as many people do it, using it as, as they want. Um, but as the person who wants to license it, uh, they want to make sure that they're the only ones doing it. So uh, there are things having to do with um, territory agreements. So you might license it to one person for the eastern part of the United States, and another person might have rights in the western part of the United States. And it's just something good to have an attorney go through and make sure that you know what you're getting when you have these agreements with people to uh, to license your invention. Mm-hmm. We actually analyze a lot of the contracts for what the numbers look like, like what's the money, how is that flowing. But the the strategy really depends on the strength of the intellectual property protection, the, the patents, the trademarks, the copyrights. It's really, really critical. That's one of the first questions that we get asked by a company that might license a product from one of our clients is always, well, okay, what's the protection, more countries, et cetera. So it's really important. Um, There's one other question that um, we have kind of touched on a little bit, and that is, is what do you do if there is an innovation that's on an existing patented product? Because we see that. We have people call us and they say, oh, well, you know, my, my innovation is an improvement on XYZ product. How do they deal with that with IP? Yeah, this is actually one of the, the, the confusing areas. People think that if you have a patent on something, that you're able to, to make that and make a product covering your patent. And this isn't always the case. You can analogize it to someone having the uh, keys to the car. It's like, well, can you drive the car if you have the keys? You know, maybe, you know, but maybe the car is locked in the garage. Maybe you don't have a driver's license. You can't, you don't know if you can drive the car or not. All you know is that you can stop other people from driving it. So every invention, almost everything is going to be an improvement on something else. So someone could have a patent on an invention that has parts A, B, and C, and you thought of this great way to do, uh, to add on part D. Now you could get a patent on that, on that extra part in addition, if it's considered new, useful, and non-obvious. But the problem is someone has a patent on, on an invention that has parts A, B, and C, and you have parts A, B, and C in yours. So what do you do? 
um, you can't uh, make your product having part D, and they are not allowed to make a product having parts A, B, C, and D, because that's what you have a patent on. So the way to get around this is something called a, a cross-licensing deal, where you say, okay, I'll let you use your, uh, I'll let you use my patent, and you can use, uh, and I can use yours. Um, or you might have some t- other type of arrangement where one person might say, well, I'll just, you know, sell my patented uh, invention to you, and then you can have any improvements that, that come upon it. So there are different ways uh, to take care of that. But you do always want to be careful that just because you get a patent doesn't mean that you can make and use your invention because there could be other things stopping you from doing it. That is amazing explanation. I love that. That's the best one I've ever heard of how the cross-licensing works. So thank you for sharing that and for your professional perspective. So important when people are doing things that are core to their business, like their intellectual property, that they they do it strategically. So I want to make sure that we mention how people can connect with you and your podcast and where they can find it. So if you can share that with everybody, that would be a fabulous service. Yeah, sure. Um, my podcast is called Patenting for Inventors. So you could just go to uh, Apple Podcasts or whatever your favorite platform is. Um, I, you can call me, and my phone number is 424-281-0162. Uh, I have a website, Diamonds Patent Law, and that's D-I-A-M-E-N-T, Patent Law. Um, you know, there's so many ways to contact people these days. I think I've covered the main ones. Uh, my email is adam at diamondpatentlaw.com. And, uh, you know, look forward to hearing from anyone if they have any questions or, you know, want to move forward with any patents or, you know, trademarks, copyrights, other intellectual property, too. Adam, I am so glad we had time to have a conversation today and to get such good information out in the world. I appreciate not just your intelligence and your professional expertise, but your heart in wanting to really help and serve people. So I'd really like it if you could give your phone number and your email address again, because I really think that if someone is really up to something in their business with their product and they really want to grow it, that getting in touch with you for professional perspective on their intellectual property and on their patents in particular is a really, really great service. So give me the phone number and email address again. Yep, it's 424-281-0162. And the email is adam at diamond, D-I-A-M-E-N-T, patentlaw.com. Perfect. Thank you again, everyone. With that, this has been Amy Wenslow with the Product Business Podcast. We'll be back with the next episode shortly. Thank you so much for listening and for your creativity and your heart in the world. And thank you so much for having me. Bye, everyone.